Hello everyone and welcome back. Today is January 29th, 2021. And this is the Skeptical Ghost Heathen. And you're listening to Season 1, Episode 7, simply entitled Kingdoms and Gods and the Art of Storytelling. So, in this episode, I want to take a look at a couple of interesting stories that were being told um, around the Middle East at the time that might have been borrowed and passed around from one culture to the next. But um, it would be interesting to take a look at these very important stories um, that were being um, told by the Babylonians and um, the, the, the um, Sumerians and just... Uh, it, and you know we'll even get around to um, you know the stories being told and uh, you know in, in this great city of Canaan, you know pre-Israelite Jews. Um, so we'll, we'll get down to all that. But uh, they, I think these stories are fascinating. It'll be interesting as you're listening to them to be able to identify, hey, I've heard that before somewhere else, and um, have that discussion. So um, without further ado, again, let's fasten our seatbelts and let's go. So around 4,500 years ago, right now we're in that 4,000 to 2,000 before the Common Era, and we basically start off with a group of roaming desert Arabs that were consisting of many different tribes that migrated through Mesopotamia, Egypt, and even as far as Africa. Um, They spoke one of a group of different related languages that included um, Hebrew at some point and Arabic. But um, storytelling was extremely popular among these cultures. And usually when we hear these stories, I mean, obviously, you know, they're some of them probably some form of entertainment, I'm sure. But when you really start listening to these stories, a lot of them kind of come down to about the legitimization, you know, of a civilization or or, or legitimization of 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 a culture. And it kind of starts coming down to, um, you know, these stories being told as kind of like a a justification of a people, if you would. But, you know, these stories also took on a lot of political political themes as well. I mean, they might be stories being told about characters such as an Adam and Eve or a a Gilgamesh or, um, you know, some some of these people like that or any Nana who are about to talk about. But a lot of these stories took on a lot of political... I don't know, they, they, they had a lot of political themes built into them as well. You know, so these stories would explain laws and they would explain codes. You know, we talked about Hammurabi in the, in the you know, in the last chapter. But um, all spoken through a god and then revealed by a king or perhaps even a prophet such as Moses. You know, just like what we saw back with Hammurabi and, you know, through the god Marduk. So these stories would come in several kinds of platforms, you know, when they're, you know, we're going back some, you know, perhaps 5,500, you know, maybe even 6,000 years ago, you know, getting down to where the uh, creation myth is said to happen, you know, 4,004 BC. But a lot of these stories are coming around and starting to generate around this time. But they would come on different kind of platforms, you know. I mean, we're, we're we're done with like painting on caves and you know doing stuff like that. We're becoming a little bit more um, civilized, and you know when when we're coming down to uh, how we tell our stories. But they would come on several different platforms. Like um, oral tradition was was one of the was one of the major ways that stories were being told, such as what well, we'll learn about the Mishnah, um, which is uh, the Jewish oral tradition, uh, that the Torah was told, which is uh, orally, which is called the Mishnah. We'd, we'd see these developing on clay tablets, um, writings or painting stories on, on walls would 
Although those, you know, that was like more, you know, primitive man, but still would continue on through. Um, we would find evidence of, you know, papyrus scrolls, um, you know, having these stories written about, written as well. So obviously as technology improved and, you know, these stories being told, but a lot of it was, was spoken orally. And these oral stories would be passed down from generation to generation. And what we find unique, or not unique, but just interesting is all these stories, they have gods or a god, goddesses, and always usually in their plural form, there's always lots of gods in these stories. Um, but, you know, they're still, everybody was still very much poly polytheistic in nature at this time you know we didn't nobody really came down to having a one single creator god for quite a while after this but they all all these stories there was always an adversary and even an underworld including the including the babylonians they definitely had an underworld that they that they um imagined but every story also had a bad guy and an avenging hero so these stories will serve the same purpose as, you know, we've been discussing for the last few chapters about imagined realities, shared myths, you know, about their gods and so on and so forth. But these stories were shared for centuries. They would adapt to other stories told in other groups, other villages, other territories, other nations. Many times these gods would even merge, such as Yahweh did. You know, remember Yahweh, the Canaanite storm and warrior god? And city and state god to the to, to 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 be the Syrian god or Baal or El, the Canaanite god Baal. You now he's seen throughout multiple kingdoms, and even brother to Yahweh in some manuscripts, as both were sons of the supreme creator god El. So the stories about the gods and their laws they would change over time, as did history and what was happening in, in the political world as well as. In the in you know in that particular nation's culture at the time, for example, we'll see that in the in the Old Testament, books will be edited and expanded over hundreds of years. Stories will be invented about actual historical events, such as um, King Nebuchadnezzar and you know the, the king of Babylon, or perhaps um, Belshazzar, his successor, but all interacting with Jewish mythological characters for, to fulfill a narrative for their supreme creator God Yahweh. But every culture had one. Every culture had a creation myth, identifying their nation as the first and, of course, the most powerful nation of all. They all did it, even if they were, even if they were a horrible nation and constantly being crushed, constantly being smashed, constantly being conquered. Say they're the they're, they're the conquered nation of the week. They they would still tell great stories of going to battle and killed a million with one blow, underneath the king of whoever, and with underneath the guidance of this particular god. So, they all did it. Many stories were derived from oral stories passed down through generations. Even, we'll see, even within the Greeks, you know, some eight, eight, 800 years before Common Era. Um, it's called a laconic style of speech, which is, they really, really practice. You know, you have these, these orators were huge a thousand years before the Common Era. This, this, this using this dialect, using this, using this tone when I came through and we smashed them dead. One million down with a throw of a stone. Something like that. Anyway, but laconic speech was something that the Greeks were very famous for. And it was also practiced throughout many of these other cultures. They all did it. 
It was it was the drive-in movie at the time, right? You go and all sit around, and, and an individual who was a great orator would get up and tell these great stories. And sure, they would evolve over time. They would change based upon what's happening again politically. I mean, there can't be a huge climate shift in in, in the politics, and you can't alter your story to to you know to include that and comment on it. It's got it's got it's got to be on there. But every culture had one. Everyone had their own creation myth, all about the legitimization of a nation. But but the, these stories were told to, or they were designed to be performed in front of live audiences, if you would, at the time. Taking on new characters, new themes, updated and improved as times changed. But we'll even see this in the Old Testament scriptures, as we see in the Babylonian and the Assyrian and the Greek literature, all making courageous statements about their kings, generals, and their gods, conquering their enemies and taking control of the land. And many times, the battle never even happened. Or it was a small clash between five or ten guys. One guy brought a broken beer bottle and the other guy brought a switchblade. But <laughs> or it was a small clash that just both opposing sides would write these types of dramas about. And we find many times that these stories about these battles happened centuries later. A lot of time these stories are told about past generations. Something that happened 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago absolutely embellished and changed. And we absolutely know this. So, but one thing for sure is that we need to understand about the Jewish Bible is it was never intended for other people's eyes. No one from other nations or even small city-states, have you? It was only ever intended for the eyes of the Yahwistic Jews. Yahwistic Jews taken from the word Yahweh, obviously, inside of these particular tribes or these particular groups. Now these describe, now these tribes we will discuss shortly, settled in Palestine outside of the great city of Canaan. We'll talk a lot about the city of Canaan because the Hebrew Bible actually, you know, I mean, you know, God commands the Jews to kill every single one of them and rape their women and kill the children, and Canaan is theirs. Well, Canaan was but we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Canaan, but it was a, a beautiful port city that was full of trade. I mean, you know, ships would come in and go out all the time. But they, they, that this group, that this group of Yahwist, uh, they became Yahwist. When, when I make this point, when I call them Yahwist or if I call them Jews, I'm not making a, I'm not making a point of a culture. I'm making a point of a political party. That's going to be very important whenever I use the word Yahwist or Yahwistic, or Jews, we're talking, it's like if I say, hey, this is a this is a Trump party, or this is a Republican, or the, the Democrats. That's really how we're going to look at that. Then we'll tie it all in together. But, but these tribes, we will discuss shortly, they settled in Palestine outside of the city of Canaan. They lived in tents for the most part, and they kept to themselves. They, they chose to live outside of the city, not within the politics of inside the city walls. And, um, and this happened over centuries eventually creating their, their own system of laws that were contrary to the laws and practices of the great city, you know, inside the walls. But these stories that made up of the Mishnah, the oral tradition, they weren't any different than any other culture, meaning oral stories told, you know, these oral stories were not exclusive to just the Jews, that political party. 
In fact, Greeks had been practicing an oral tradition for centuries before the Jews began to invent their stories. It was simply an internal propaganda and politics. It really was. We know this also because the Jews never proselytized or tried to make other groups read and learn these stories about their gods, their ways, and you know, that Canaan was you know, deserved to them. Israel belongs to them, especially Gentiles. The Mishnah was very similar to like ads in a newspaper or a billboard or scrolling ads that show up on your Instagram page. It was the way that stories were told about great generations of a strong people and their gods that they followed. Gods that they followed. So some of these gods, obviously, were goddesses. And one I want to talk about, her name is Inanna. So not all stories were about kings or generals and gods conquering nations. Some painted a different kind of story about their gods or goddesses in very much a celestial way. And we'll talk about that. But an important Babylonian story to consider is from right, right around 4,000 before the Common Era. So that makes it about 6,000 years old. So this story was being told right around the time that the Yahwistic Jews were creating their um, legitimization creative creation narrative. But the story is called The Descension of Inanna, where a Babylonian goddess, and she's the queen of heaven that must descend through seven gates of hell, or the underworld, if you would. But she's going down there basically to visit her widowed sister, the queen of the dead. So Inanna in this poem, she's dressed in her finest clothes and wears the crown of heaven upon her head. Beads around her neck. And she's got this enormous, beautiful golden breastplate. Golden ring that she carries on with her scepter. The rod of power just before she enters the underworld. She's wearing all this. You can imagine she's, she's this queen of heaven. You know, you've got this big scepter and this big chest plate, warrior princess. But when she arrives at the first gate of seven, she's met by the gatekeeper, Neti. She demands entry, though no one ever leaves the land of the dead once they enter through the gates, Neti tells her. Inanna informs the gatekeeper who she is, for I am the queen of heaven and demand to see my sister. Her sister agrees, but seemingly in a strange way. Her, her sister of hell, of the underworld. She agrees to see her, but acting very strange, she says. So she is then led through the seven gates, as each gate that she goes through is worse than the last, where eventually she is stripped down naked, humiliated by the time she gets to the seventh gate. And then she's led into the throne room, where she is naked, and she bowed low. So I'm going to quote what the manuscript says. So, the Anuna, the judges of the underworld, surrounded her. They passed judgment against her. Then her sister, Erekshagal, fastened unto Inanna the eye of death. She then struck her, and Inanna was turned into a corpse, a piece of rotting meat, and was hung from a hook on the wall. <laughs> so, after three days and three nights, she did manage to be replaced by her husband as a proxy, so that she could rise again and descend back to heaven where she's even more powerful than ever. It is, it is important to compare this narrative to an odd and out of place um, actual, actually it was a Christian gospel that did not become canonized. And it was called the Ascension of Isaiah versus the Descension of Inanna. 
and written some 4,000 years later, obviously. I believe it was written sometime around the, the first century, maybe um, early second century. But, but it's an early first century redaction that clearly shows that some Jews, or Yahwist, imagined similar ideas as did their Babylonian predecessors. More than likely, they had heard these stories passed down, maybe perhaps while they were in Babylonian captivity in, you know, in 587, or sometimes, or maybe even sometime closer to the 4th, or even 3rd century, especially when we're start, starting to talk about you know, some of this laconic speech from the Greeks. But in this story, the biblical character, Isaiah, what happens to him, he's actually led by an angel, during a vision, of course, it's always, it's always a vision. This angel takes Isaiah through seven levels of heaven. Seventh heaven, would you? Each level, he witnesses different levels of heaven. The higher that he went, the closer that he would be to God, he explains. The first level being the firmament. The firmament, which is where Satan and his minions would reside. This idea of Satan was very, very, very popular in the first century. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But Satan and his minions would reside in, in, in where was the firmament? Fir, <laughs> I can speak. In the firmament, it was basically just right below the moon, but above the earth. But this popular idea about heaven being seven levels is where that saying came from. I must be in seventh heaven. He eventually sees Jesus, sees him humiliated, and then killed by Satan and his minions, and then pinned to a tree. So scholars actually believe this piece of work to be 1st or 2nd century of the Common Era. Um, so obviously not written by the author of, uh, of Isaiah in the Old Testament, but still reveals how early Jewish Christian writers imagined Jesus dying, as a, dying in a celestial realm, not a historical realm. This also reveals their ideas of heaven and hell and the multiple levels. Of course, the Egyptians had this idea too. They believed in multiple levels. The higher, the less sin that you had, the higher your, your, your soul, your body would elevate. The higher you elevated, the closer you got to the gods. But early Jews and Christians imagined a celestial realm just above the atmosphere and above the moon. In the earliest writings that we can see, these early Christians even thought that you could possibly even travel to heaven with the assistance of an angel. Or perhaps, if you had a telescope that's strong enough, you could even see. You could even see God. You could see up into the heavens. And you can see the, 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 the copy of the earth up there that we'll talk about in later times. But this unknown author was taken on their writings of Isaiah, which was a common practice, as a common theme in, ancient, in the ancient world of storytelling mythology. There's a lot of reasons for that, and we'll, we'll cover that when we get further on down the road, but it was a practice. And, we'll, and, and it, this actually is very clear that the writers of the Old Testament were very, fear, uh, very familiar with Inanna. Even if you look in Jeremiah um, 7, 18, it makes huge references made to this goddess of the underworld. So they were aware of her existence for sure, which tells us right away that they were you know, reading about and listening to these stories, whether it was you know, told or orally or if it was on papyrus or some, you know, some sort of scroll, if you would. But what else do we know about this, about this Inanna? We know that she was an, an ancient Mesopotamian goddess. She was associated with love, with beauty, with sex, war, justice, and of course, political power, legitimacy. She was originally worshipped in summer under the name Inanna and was later worshipped by the Akkadians 
um, and the Assyrians under the later name Ishtar, which most of you probably have recognized that name. Um, but she was known as the Queen of Heaven, and she was the patron goddess of um, Iana, uh, the temple of the city of Uruk, which was the main, which was her um, main cult center, if you would. Um, but she was associated with the planet Venus, and most prominent symbols um, were the lion and the eight-pointed star. That's how people kind of uh, associate and see her with. And her husband was the god Damuzid, later known as Tammuz in later literature. And her Sakal, or her personal attendant, if you would, was the goddess Nin Ninsuburu, who later became a male deity, Papsukal. Now, I know for a fact they butchered these words, so go back and look at them on page um, 56. <laughs> but these names are crazy. But um, just I'm just trying to paint the picture and give the idea how even in this story of 4,000 years, just over a course of a millennia, how the characters change. They, they even change to gender at you know, different points. So just making sure that, you know, we all agree that, yeah, these stories are old and, and they change and, you know, like how, you know, depending on what's happening in the culture or, and, you know, what's happening in politics at the time. But Inanna was worshipped in summer at at least um, in, in the early Yurk period. And that would be that 4,000 before Common Era, era all the way to 3100 BCE. But she had, she had little cult prior to the conquest of Sargon of Akkad. During the post-Sargonic era she, era, she became one of the most widely venerated deities in the Sumerian pantheon, with temples all across Mesopotamia. The cult of Inanna, or Ishtar if you would, which, had, which may have been associated with a variety of different sexual rites and deities, was continued by the Far East Semitic-speaking people, the Akkadians and the Assyrians, the Babylonians, who succeeded and absorbed the Sumerian gods and, you know, their region. And, they, you know, they, they kept Inanna, called her Ishtar. But she was especially beloved by the Assyrians, who elevated her to become the highest deity in the pantheon, ranking above their own national god, Ashur. We talked about Ashur previously with the Assyrians. But, you know, in a, in a mighty kingdom, conquering and crushing the Assyrians were nasty devils, conquering as much territory as they could under the god Ashur. But now Inanna becomes Ishtar, and rise even above this god Ashur. So, Inanna is alluded to in the Hebrew Bible as well, and she's and she she greatly influenced the the, the Phoenician goddess um, Astoreth, who later influenced the development of the Greek goddess Aphrodite. We've all learned about her in high school, I'm sure. But her cult continued to flourish until its gradual decline between the first. And all the way to the 6th centuries of the Common Era, in the wake of Christianity, of course. Though, though it still managed to survive in parts of Upper Mesopotamia, among the Assyrian communities, all the way as far as the late 18th century, if you would. So, in fact, Inanna actually appears in more myths than any other Sumerian deity altogether. She was huge, very popular, very popular among cultures multiple cultures, as we just reviewed. But many of her myths involve her taking over the domains of other deities. She was believed to have stolen the maize, M-E-S, 
which represented all positive and negative aspects of civilization, from Enki, who was the god of wisdom. But she was also believed to have taken over Iana, the, the, the temple of An, who was the god of the sky. She's, she took that, took that deity on, alongside with her twin brother, um, Attu, who would be later known as Shamash. Remember Shamash, the sun god? But Inanna was, she was the enforcer of divine justice. She destroyed Mount Ebi for having challenged her authority and unleashed her fury on the, on the gardener, I'm going to pronounce the name, Shakalatuda, after he had raped her in her sleep and tracked down the bandit woman, Bilulu, and killed her in divine retribution for having murdered the Muzid. That was her husband. But in the standard Akkadian version of the Epic of Gilgamesh, who we will talk about shortly, Ishtar takes Gilgamesh to become her consort. But when, when Gilgamesh decides he refuses, she in return unleashes the bowl of heaven, resulting in the death of Enkidu. And Gilgamesh's subsequent grapple, well, this is during his subsequent grapple for his mortality. So finally, Inanna, or Ishtar, their mo the most famous myth is the story of her descent that we just talked about into and the return from Kur, which is the ancient Sumerian underworld that we had just talked about, going to find her sister. But a myth in which she attempts to conquer the domain of her older sister, um, I'm going to pronounce her name very, very slowly, Ereshigal, who is the queen of the underworld, but is instead deemed guilty of hubris um, by the seven judges of the underworld and struck dead. Three days later, again, here's the name, Ninshubur pleads with all the gods to bring Inanna back. But all of them refuse except for Inki, who sends two sexless beings <laughs> to rescue Inanna back to heaven. They escort Inanna out of the underworld, but the Gala, um, who is the guardian of the underworld, drags her husband in return, Damuzid, down to the underworld as for her replacement. However, don't worry, Damuzid is eventually permitted to return to heaven for half of the year, while, while, while his sister remains in the underworld for the other half, resulting in the cycles of the season. So if you're taking a look at the essay while you're on here, I actually included a picture of Inanna, are a sculpture of her on page 58. Um, it's pretty cool looking, but um, she's, again, she's synonymous with Ishtar. You can pull either one of those up and you'll basically see the lions that we talked about and the, um, yeah, the eight-pointed star. But by 3000 um, BCE, the Babylonians, the Sumerians, and the Egyptians, by this time, they're all creating characters. And all these characters are interacting with these gods. They had names, they had families, they had friends, parents, having dialogues with each other. As you saw in this story about the Babylonian princess Inanna, in four, you know, told a thousand years prior, where she was, she was the son of a god who was humiliated by the devil and killed only to rise again to ascend to heaven, which would become a popular theme and shared storytelling across multiple cultures and, 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 and genres in the Middle East. We also have Greek and Egyptian mythologies with the continued dying and then rising savior god motifs. Themes developing with intense character development that, quite frankly, might even put the Game of Thrones to shame. As a matter of fact, just, okay, so I just recently finished a Game of Thrones. And if 
anyone got it right, those guys got it right. So, so the the the, the, the writing team for Game of Thrones, that's I mean, just the way that they utilize gods for the le- legitimization and you know, really, really close. Um, you know, re- really good to the way that uh, most scholars believe things happen. So I'd say those those guys definitely did did their homework. But there will be huge family trees developed as these as these stories grow and and start the start to blossom. You can see example of this by you know J- James Usher who developed the, the 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 biblical family tree that we talked about in the you know in the very first episode. You know that gets us to you know a, a creation story of four thousand and four BCE. You know date date for the creation of the universe. So by now the Bronze Age civilization has arrived in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, and as far as India. Artifacts would be discovered linking pre-Vedic religions. Buildings were taken on multi-story developments, and modern civilizations were emerging around us. In Egyptian culture, we have artifacts dating back over 9,000, 10,000, even 12,000 years. We see this from dating on the on the Sphinx and some pyramids, mummies, statues, tools, even political correspondences, and thousands of years of record-keeping. And, and which creates a little contradiction to some of the Bible narrative. No mention of any Jews in Egypt, although the Bible says that they were there. There is no mention of a flood, plagues, Moses, or the Exodus, anywhere to be found in all of this literature. But not just Egypt, but Canaan and all through the Levant. Every route that you can imagine throughout the desert on their way to the Holy Land there's not one drop of evidence that 600 Jews, 600,000 Jews spent 40 years wandering the desert. Right? I mean, think about it. What 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 what's that um what's that big hippie event that takes place out in the desert, the the the, the burning man, you know, where you have a couple thousand people in the, in the desert for the weekend? The, the the remains that are left behind are ridiculous. And here we have you know we, we we have um we have scientists and we have archaeologists that have been digging through the desert for years trying to find evidence of this, but it just like the ark, it doesn't exist. And also, it's interesting that this this narrative of uh, Moses wandering the desert and um, if, you, if if you know the story, he's actually tempted in the desert while they're out there for forty years. This narrative is redacted and later used in the New Testament with Jesus wandering the desert now for 40 days instead of 40 years and being tempted by none the other than Satan. But no records of a sudden population growth or perhaps even a decline of nearly a million people. In addition, at the time the Bible states states that the Exodus happened, Egypt had conquered Canaan, which included Israel around 1490 to 1446 BCE. So one would have to ask themselves, why would the Jews escape from Egypt? Only to go to Egypt? It doesn't make sense. The fact of the matter is, Bible writers for the Exodus book wasn't written anywhere near this date, and actually much, much later. Obviously, this author, or authors, they were completely unaware of the political and territorial conditions of Egypt at the time. They just didn't know. Maybe they skipped history class. I don't know. But this story was invented sometime closer to probably around the Babylonian captivity and then after, more than likely. So between 500 and even 300 BCE, most of these stories are actually being written. 
But with some clever backdating and retrofitting, you know, to, to fulfill this narrative, it, it's, it's done. We talked about people, you know, these writers um, writing about things that happened two, three hundred years, you know, previously. But this tactic was common from culture to culture, as previously discussed. So it is important to understand that the copious notes that the Greeks and the Romans and the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and especially the Egyptians, kept. They were, for more or less, mundane purposes, such as, you know, bills of sale, tax receipts, records of weather. They really kept track of the weather, obviously for reasons for, um, for, for, for planting and, and harvesting. But the governmental correspondences, all very important, mundane. These cultures tracked everything from the most banal, the most mundane, to the most incredible, such as wars and battles and, and conquest. But unfortunately, you know, there's just no corroborating evidence of or a mention of a great flood. Locust swarms taking over the city or chasing Moses and 6,000 Jews across the Red Sea. But you'll have, you'll have, you know, we've got apologetics are out there that will, you know, I see these all the time. Well, there, there, there were, you know, small, maybe there were just smaller floods, just a bunch of smaller floods, not a great big one like, you know, that's mentioned in the Bible. Sure, there are always floods. You know, the, the Nile, the Nile would overfill every year. But anyway. So, like Inanna in the Babylonian myth, we now have another god that I think we should talk about that kind of plays an important role. And I think you guys hear me talk about him a lot, but we have another god named Osiris in Egyptian mythology. So here we have another god who's born of a god, and he is the most important god of the underworld. Osiris is the god of hunting and battle as well as judgment in the afterlife. He wore a lot of hats, this god did. He was murdered by his evil brother. His name is Seth, who... Um, Christians and Jews later would um, represent him as the devil or would, would share that role. Remember, God's kind of shared roles and uh, deities moved from one religion to the other or one culture to the other. But he, dism he dismembers Osiris. He cuts him into a bunch of tiny little pieces. Seth was depicted by the Egyptians as the god of chaos, evil and violence. Exactly how Jewish writers later characterized their Satan, ruler of the underworld or this Lucifer, Beelzebub. But Osiris's wife, Isis, she was able to use her magic to put him back together again and raise him from the dead to conceive a child together who they named Horus. This dying and rising savior god theme was very popular among these cultures in the Middle East at the time. The more tragic the death, the greater the martyrdom, the better. In fact, raising of dead was extremely popular in general during these times. But it's also around this time, we're talking about this, you know, 4,000, 3,000 BCE, that the Sumerian cuneiform emerged as the first written documentation on religion in Mesopotamia. This is important. This is, this is actually really huge of a, of a find that we have. But these are the early stages of writing. The Sumerians worshipped many gods. They worshipped many deities. Priests were established and temples were built for worship. Now, I'm talking about, you know, much grander and greater in terms of quantity than the Gobekli Tepe that we talked about in Tur Turkey. We're now talking about erecting churches with priests, at, you know, or, or temples and priests. And these priests were in control way before kings were, often, uh, often were male and even were female. However, when kings began the rule and the priest and priestesses often had much power and influence over the kings, 
The idea of a heaven or deities and of a hell for evildoers was a popular concept at the time. When priests were working with kings to rule and figure out how to control a million people, a million subjects, this idea you know, is, is came successfully along with their social cooperation through, through, the, through their shared myths, through their shared gods. But the fear, of, of the fear of going to an evil underworld ruled by an evil god helped keep people from doing bad things. And like Inanna, these stories were shared constantly in written forms as well as through an oral tradition. I honestly believe that this is the original intention behind religions, other than the power and the manipulation that we know of you know, during this time. Some might say religion gave people morality. That yeah, was the intention behind it. I don't think so much for the modern day. I think we've grown as a civilization. And you know, you could, you could take a lot from all these different religions and all these different stories. But they're, again, they're just stories. But also at this time, we have pharaohs ruling Upper and Lower Egypt that lasted for 30 dynasties. This would take us some um, 10,000, 12,000 BCE. Um, these, are, these numbers are actually fairly new in, in scientific observations, but um, probably most history books will call it around um, 3,100 to 332 BCE. But a lot of, there's a lot of lot of things that are pointing to um, that the Sphinx and the pyramid is much much older than than we think. But they were gods on Earth with a great amount of power. Pyramids would be erected in their names that would take decades to build with the use of slave labor. At this time, around 2600 BCE, the oldest surviving pyramid, uh, commissioned by Pharaoh Dozier in 2560 BCE, the Great Pyramid of Giza has completed construction, still stands as the tallest of three of man-made pyramids. That was the tallest structure for nearly 3,800 years. The Great Pyramid Giza took 20 years to build, and that was the tomb of the Pharaoh Khufu. But for 2,500 years, pharaohs ruled Upper and Lower Egypt. However, many gods were worshipped, as mentioned above. Egyptians definitely believed in their gods and their judgment in the afterlife. Pyramids were tombs built to bury their kings along with their belongings to protect them as they entered into this next world. These myths about Osiris and his evil brother Seth, an underworld for evildoers, were enough to obtain vast cooperation for thousands of slave workers to build these temples. Shrines, ginormous tombs for these Egyptian kings, like we saw in Turkey with the Gobekli Tepe several centuries before. So I'm going to wrap it up here. This one was a little bit longer than I had hoped, so I apologize for that. And um, I hope that the subject was interesting, but I think that um, talking about um, Inanna and Osiris and, um, you know, just some of these other gods, Ashur, and, uh, and, and I know that we'd made a lot of uh, parallels in comparison to the Hebrew Bible, um, but, you know, I think it's all important just to see how these um, stories and how they you know, shared deities and how um, if a one conquering nation, you know, um, took over a territory, um, many times he would absorb some of those gods or vice versa. So um, a lot of these stories are like um, <laughs> just just like intermingled with 
multiple stories from other cultures and um it, but I wanted to be able to use this time to kind of separate them out so as we move forward and start looking at some of these other stories that we are going to read through into the Old Testament as well as into the New Testament of the Christian Bible, um, we'll be able to reflect back upon this. So thank you all for your time, and I hope it wasn't too boring. And I know my voice has to be getting old, but um, uh, with that said, I'm out. Right, we just finished listening to episode seven of season one entitled Kingdoms and Gods and the Art of Storytelling. I hope that y'all enjoyed and be good humans. Talk to you next time.